Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, Thank you guys for being here. Uh, As we continue to worship our great holy God and King, uh, I'd ask that you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 9, where we've been where we've been for the past uh, couple months, and we'll continue by God's grace over the next uh, couple months as we complete the book uh, uh, in the summer. Um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 is where we'll be. Let me pray and ask God to continue to be with us as we uh, open his word this morning. Uh, Father God in heaven, thank you, uh, God, that you are good, that you are indeed holy, uh, the most holy being ever. God, that out of your uh, kindness, you... Uh, choose to pursue your wayward people, God, that you um, are wonderful, majestic, God, that you are gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward your people. God, I thank you that through Christ we can worship you. Through Christ we have a new identity together, and through Christ uh, we can uh, relate to you and receive mercy and forgiveness and freedom and joy. And so, God, now I pray that as we continue to worship, as we've done through singing and prayer, and as we will do through communion and um, now through the opening of your scriptures, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds, God, that you would shape us to be more like your son, Jesus, that you would shape us together as your community of believers uh, to be the the dwelling place for your spirit. And, God, that you would use us to steward grace and good news in uh, in the world. God, we thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at a death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent of all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with rites, and the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. This is God's word. Friends, Jesus shapes us to be a new people for eternity and in the present. He shapes our identity. 
He changes our relationships with God and each other, and he changes the way in which we live life here and now. In the third installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've read the book or uh, seen the movies, you know that there's a classic scene where the hero Aragorn embraces his destiny to be the king. He awakens from a dream in which his beloved Arwen faces a decision to choose between immortality or a mortal life. And the elf king Elrond approaches Aragorn and charges him with this statement. Become who you were born to be. Become who you were born to be. In the same way, we were created for a relationship with God and each other, but sin and rebellion breaks this relationship with God and breaks our relationship with each other. In essence, sin and rebellion within our lives causes us to forget who we were born to be, and therefore we fail to become who we were born to be. But see, God in his kindness pursues us and restores us to remind us of our identity, who he created us to be, and to redeem us, to restore us back to that identity of who we are to be. Therefore, we are charged to become who he created us and redeemed us to be. Verse 15 tells us this, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, covenant's a large, powerful word in Scripture. Covenant is a relational term. It's uh, not just a business contract like a legal contract where two parties agree to some sort of business, but rather a covenant is a relational thing. If you are married, you know that a marriage relationship, the marriage relationship you have with your spouse is different than your business agreement with your boss, right? In the same way, a covenant relationship between God and man is a, is a relational understanding. And throughout the Bible, God shows over and over again. He, he institutes covenants with his people. He says, I am your God. You are my people. I am your king. You are my children. Because I love you, because I created you, because I have redeemed you and rescued you, you should live this way. God institutes covenant relationship with his people, and God's people, time and time again, break it. You see, throughout the Bible, God is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. He's pursuing his wayward people, and throughout biblical history, God's people are seen as wayward children. Or scripture even compares God's people to a whoring bride. But God pursues and always upholds his end of the covenant agreement and does for his people what they cannot do for themselves, and that is to rescue and restore them, calling them back to their identity, calling them back to become who they were born to be. And when God's people are obedient in that relationship to become who they were born to be, things go well. And when they rebel, things go poorly. And so for you and I today, Christ has secured for us this covenant relationship with God. In Christ, through Jesus, through his perfect life, through his death as a sacrifice and an atonement for our sins, uh, through his resurrection and through the Holy Spirit's prompting, calling us to Christ, we understand that we have a new relationship with God. That 
Because of Jesus, we can be restored back to that identity. That because of Jesus, we are rescued and redeemed to become who we were born to be. And there's a responsibility we have because of that. There's a way of living. There's a way of fostering that covenant relationship for us to do something as we become who Christ redeemed us to be. And that's what we see in the book of Hebrews. The author has been laying out for us this great theme of Jesus being the true and better prophet of God, the true and better king, the true and better priest, the true and better mediator, the true and better only rescuer and redeemer of God's people. And in the verses today, I want us to look at this new identity of called and redeemed people and how this shapes our relationship with God and each other, both fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, and how this prompts a new way of living, both in action and in motivation. So first, look at this, the new identity we have. Verse 15 says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Again, what I want us to see is that God institutes covenants. God upholds his covenant relationship with his people. I'm your God. You're my people. God's people always rebel and can't uphold their end of the bargain. Right. They can't fulfill their role in the relationship. So Jesus comes along as the mediator saying, I will fulfill the role of this covenant relationship. I will be the mediator. I will do what God's people have failed to do. I will live that perfect life in covenant relationship with God the Father. Jesus did that on our behalf. He also was a mediator as a sacrifice so that we could have once and for all forgiveness. And so we have this new identity in a covenant relationship that in verse 15 says this, that we are called and that we are redeemed. The author of Hebrews tells us that our relationship with God, our new identity is expressed both in a calling and in redemption. We have a new identity as called people in redemption. The word call in scripture is a powerful word. It's a very broad word that has huge implications. Often we think of calling as like, hey, will you call me on the phone? But really the word calling has both a, a meaning of designation and direction. Designation meaning like you were called my people. Like you're, I am called Jeremy, right? I'm called dad by my kids. There's a designation in my identity. But also uh, as, as Christians, we have a designation as called into a covenant relationship with God. You are called Christian, you are called God's people. But there's also an implication of direction, meaning that there's, there's something you do with that identity, right? You, you are called to live a certain way, to do certain things. In fact, for you Latin folks out there, out there the word vocation really comes from the word calling. You were called out to do something. So if you have a job, if you have a career, your vocation, you have this title or maybe a designation as I am a doctor. Well, because you are a doctor, you do medical things, right? If you were called a business owner, well, you, you run your business. You do your business type things. If you were called a student, you do your studies, right? Calling means both a designation of identity and a direction in that identity. And so 
Scripture tells us that Christ, being the mediator of this new covenant relationship between God and his people, that we who follow Jesus are called, we are designated as God's people, as God's children, as God's bride. We are directed because of that calling to live in a new way. And this can be personal and corporate. We mustn't miss that. If you were called to, to belong to God, you were called in the context of God's people. Jesus doesn't just call you so that you and Jesus can just sit on the shores of heaven forever, just the two of you, singing songs. No, he calls you in the context of people. And that's very, very biblical, right? But we see calling as part of the identity. Part of that identity is also redemption. You are redeemed. Because verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I love the word redemption. There's a reason why this church is named redemption, and it, it comes from this beautiful gospel, biblical understanding that Jesus redeems God's people. Redemption means to be set free, to be released from shackles. It is this picture of somebody being in bondage and slavery, literally in chains. Can't, you can't set yourself free. Somebody has to come break those chains for you. Somebody has to come release you from the net, from the trap, from the prison. And that's what Jesus does. You see, God's people in the Old Testament we're approached by God. God initiates this covenant relationship. God comes down and says, I'm your God. You're my people. I'm your king. You're my people. I'm your father. You're my children. I am your bridegroom, and you are my bride. And God's people, time and time again, get trapped in the snare of sin, of disbelief, of rebellion, of idolatry. Just read the Old Testament. And every time God's people forget who their God is, forget their identity, they start doing other things. They forget their calling as designation, but also direction. And so they say, we, we forget that God's our God, so we're going to worship this God instead. We forget that we're supposed to live like this. We're going to live this way instead. And that takes them into a trap, into a snare like quicksand, and they cannot free themselves. But Jesus redeems. Jesus releases the captives. This is what the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would do, would come to proclaim good news to the captives, to set prisoners free. This is what Jesus did as he walked the earth, not only through his teaching, but through his miracles, his actions of making blind see and lame walk was a statement of you will no longer be defined, called by your past, called by your sickness, called by your failures. You are called someone different now, and I'm setting you free. I am redeeming you to be who you were born to become. And that is great news. So in Christ, we have a new identity as calling and as redeemed. And I love how verse 15 just packages it all right there. Just commit that one verse to memory. If you check out right now, if you're like, dude, I have a seven-minute attention span, fine. We're almost at seven minutes, I think. So just remember that verse and let it simmer on your brain and heart. For those of you who have a 37-minute Attention span, let's keep going, right? Love you. Love you guys. Verse 19 says this. For when every commandment, this is important, verse 19, for when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. This is complicated verse. 
All right, the writer of Hebrews is connecting the dots for the first century church who was fully understanding the Jewish tradition. For you and I, it's very difficult. We say, what is, it? What is hyssop? What is this sprinkling of blood? Very confusing, perhaps, for us. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to the first century Christian church who were very, very familiar, many of whom wanted to just return to the Old Testament Jewish tradition and not really progress in Christ, which is why he's writing to them. But what he's doing, the author's connecting the dots, saying, hey, you know, just like, just like the priest would do this, just like the, the, the law, the covenant, written covenant law was given to God's people. I mean, this is, this is what we did to worship, to consecrate it, to, to we would sprinkle both the law with blood and all the people, uh, designating them as covenant people, saying you were covenant people. They throw, throw some blood on you. Um, that's how they did it back then. The writer's saying, look, Jesus is redeeming, but, but also there's this corporate identity, right? In verse 19, every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, right? At the end of verse 19, he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Again, your identity, your calling is not only personal, although it's partly personal. God loves you individually. Yes, he does. But it's a corporate understanding. All the people we are being called out, gathered together as a community identity here. Verse 24 goes on to express that even more. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The redemption we have in Christ is ours, not yours. Not mine only, but ours, together. Now, why is this important? And it's important for us to understand that a covenant relationship with God is instituted by God the Father, initiated by God the Father. We have to understand that this covenant relationship is secured by Jesus Christ, our mediator. But we have to understand that the identity is personal and also corporate. It's a community thing. Because if we want to understand our designation as God's people, and we want to understand the way we live life differently, we can't isolate this calling from the other people being called. We just can't. Because if we do, we lose sight of what God's doing. Right? We, lose, we, we, lose, we put ourselves on a pedestal. The only person on the planet that has the one perfect one-on-one relationship with God the Father, the one person ever to do that ever is Jesus, period. He's the only one that can say, I have this one-on-one relationship perfectly. He does that on our behalf so that we corporately can experience it together. We are redeemed, yes, personally from your sin, but also corporately as all the people because Jesus acts on our behalf. You with me? Tracking? Make sense? Yes. Good. Identity. Our new identity in a covenant relationship is both called and redeemed. This is personal and corporate. So I want you to think about that. Number one, think about how this new identity shapes your motivations and decisions. Think about how does it? How does God's initiative of a relationship with you and us together shape how you do life? How does it shape how you relate to other people? How does it shape how you deal with fears and doubts? How you deal with friction and relationships with other believers? How you deal with relationships with non-Christians? Think about that. 
Because we're moving on to point number two. A new covenant life is expressed by a new identity as being called and redeemed personally and as a community. But secondly, on that point, we have a new relationship with God and a new relationship with each other. You see, being designated as God's people and being defined as God's people prompts a new way of living. And part of that new way of living is a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. It's something that we, we do, right? It's, we, we like to use the word fellowship. It's a biblical word. It's a great word. Type it into your Bible software or look it up in, your, in the back of your Bible and just read every passage on the word fellowship. And if you read it carefully, you will find that the word fellowship means community. It, it deals with relationship. And it has, carries with it active participation. Fellowship is not passive. You can't just show up and sit down and say, I'm fellowshipping. You can't do that with other people, and you can't do that with God. So I don't want to scare you. I don't want you to say, well, wait a second, Jeremy, you're saying I have to do things to relate to God? No, I'm saying God takes the initiative. Through Christ, he secures the relationship we have. It's secure. Your identity in Christ is secure. If you are a Christian, you belong to God. You have that relationship. It's, it's secure. Nobody can take it from you. Scripture says that Jesus secures it once for all. So I'm not saying that that relationship does not exist or that it only exists because you're doing something. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying Jesus secures that relationship for you. But like any relationship, we foster the relationship. We, we actively participate in the relationship, right? Scripture says, because of Christ, we have fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. We can't, you cannot get married and then check out on your wedding day. I mean, those of you who are married, no, that's that's such a great covenantal illustration. That's one of the reasons why God made marriage, just so you know. Because you can't show up on your wedding day and say, I do, give me the ring, and let's go get some meatballs and do the electric slide. And then the next day, say, I'm checking out. And 30 years pass. I mean, dudes, if you just sat on the couch and didn't speak to your wife for 30 years, and then 30 years later she comes to you and says, hey, I don't like the way our marriage is going, and you just say, well, 30 years ago we got married. I'll show you the pictures. You see the ring? That wouldn't work, would it? No, of course not. Because a covenant relationship, although it's secure, although it's been instituted, although it's been inaugurated by God, has to be fostered. There is active participation. That's what fellowship means. And Scripture says because Jesus has secured it, because Jesus is like putting the ring on the finger, that's it. We are secure in Christ with God. However, to foster that relationship, there's some participation we do. Right. Here's what Hebrews says with our new relationship with God, our new relationship with each other and a covenant living is fellowship with God, fellowship with other people. All right. We see in verse 20, we see that the in the Old Testament, there was a role that the priest played. Right. We see that that um, in verse 19, that there are commandments that are given to God's people, that Moses uh, was bringing them to the people. The priest would sprinkle um, water and scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkle the book and the people. Verse 20 says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So a covenant relationship starts with God, is secured by Jesus the mediator. But look at what verse 20 says. It's a covenant that God commanded. So we're like, wait a second. If God initiates it 
and Jesus secures it as the mediator once and for all, why would God command us to do something? Because fellowship is participatory. Because living in a new identity has action that supports the identity that's been secured for us. You don't get married and then live like a single person. You don't get hired as a doctor and then go jet skiing during somebody else's brain surgery. You don't. You do what your identity says to do. That's why verse 20 says, look, God commands this covenant relationship. He starts it. Jesus secures it. But there is a role we have in fellowshipping and participating in a relationship with God and others. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we know that Jesus is the mediator. He secures it. And we know that one God institutes it and that the men, mankind, you and I, have a fellowshipping role. But also, this fellowship, this identity corporately being lived out involves relationships with each other. And the Bible's full of this. It's awesome. What I like about it is it comes back to identity. This is why we don't, as a church, want to bring you into redemption and say, if you want to be a member here, you need to do X, Y, and Z right now. You need to prove yourself. Because we believe that being a Christian is not based on your actions. It's based on God's initiative and Jesus' redemption of you. That's where we start with identity. But because of that identity, there are certain ways we live and we relate to one another. Right? But the identity is even spelled out here in Hebrews for us. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now, I mentioned this briefly last week. If you looked earlier into chapter 9, there's this great understanding that, that, that in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, that in worship of God, there are items used for worship. I mean, there, there are tools and, you know, lampstands and tables and, and things used in the worship of God. And the priest would consecrate those items of worship. He would purify them. The word sanctify means to, to set apart as holy for holy purposes. Right? And so if you have this temple imagery where the priest would come in and say, here are all of my items. My items are precious. My items are of great value. And these items need to be used for holy purposes. I will sanctify them. I will set them apart as holy. This is the imagery we see of what Jesus does for you and I. Jesus, as the great high priest, walks in and says, you are valuable. You are my treasures. You are of great worth to me. And I want to set you apart for holy purposes. I want to use you in the worshiping of God. I'm going to sanctify you, to set you apart as holy. I'm going to purify you so that you can be used for holy purposes. And this is what verse 21 says. The same way he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Why is this important? Because fellowship with God and fellowship each, with each other is grounded in a new identity that Christ secures for us. He does this on our behalf. Therefore, we can have great confidence in knowing that we can have fellowship with God the Father and fellowship with each other, right? We need not fear a relationship with God. We need not fear relating to other believers. Faulty believers, yes. Broken vessels that are being restored every day, yes. 
But we can rest secure in knowing that it's God's initiative and that Jesus secures it as our great high priest and mediator. Paul writes about this throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Man, what a great verse. He's speaking is a plural you there. It's not just you, although that's part. I mean, that comes later in 1 Corinthians. He talks about your personal body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. But here in verse three, he says, I mean, chapter 3, he says that you, you, you communally, corporately, us as gathered, called out, designated covenant people, we together are God's dwelling place, God's temple, that he dwells in us. Ephesians 5 says, um, be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why does Paul tell us to do this? It's because the Spirit is dwelling in us, that we together have been designated as God's people, that we fellowship with one another, and in so doing we have fellowship with God as well. Ephesians 3, six. the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That verse should resonate with the verses we've just read in Hebrews. Fellow heirs of the promise of God, those who were Jews now see the fulfillment of all of their expectation in Christ, and those who were Gentiles not part of the Jewish tradition also can take hold of those promises in Christ. And that is such good news. So friends, fellowship is not something we have, it's something that we do. And one author and commentator said that individualism is the great North American heresy. And so I want us together together to repent and actively fellowship with God and actively fellowship with one another. Why? Because it's a reflection of the gospel. It's a reflection of the identity we have in Christ being called and redeemed. Therefore, we can fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. Good news, right? So I want to ask you this. As I asked you before to assess your identity, your vocation, your calling, I want us also to assess our relationship with God. How is our relationship with God changed in Christ? Because if Christ secures the fellowship we have with God, we can be released from all fear of imperfection. You say, man, you don't, you don't know what my college years looked like. You don't know the darkness in my heart and mind right now. You don't know the, the brokenness in my marriage and family, Jeremy. God could never accept me. I've got to get straight before I come back to the Lord. No, you don't. The good news is that Jesus secures that for you. So the gospel, we have fellowship with God. We can be released from fear and guilt and shame. We could be released from pride, which let me tell you, in the Bible Belt is huge. Because we find ourselves like trapped in the prison of pride because they, well, you know, I've never smoked anything except a turkey on Thanksgiving. Good for you. Good for you. I'm glad you know you smoked that turkey imperfectly, so you still need Jesus. Turkey was dry. I had a bite of that stuff. It was dry. Shame on you. I'm just kidding. Or we can say, and, this, and I want to speak honestly to you. I'm not trying to be cocky because I have pride all up in me. I'm a musician. We feed on the opinions of others. Our success as musicians depend on, on, on the approval of others buying our music and coming to our shows or whatever. That's, that's, I grew up in a family of musicians. Three generations of musicians, man. Pride is so hard to wrestle with. So I had bad, bad dreams of playing music incorrectly. 
We have pride because of the family we come from. Maybe we have pride from the tradition we come from. Maybe you say, look, I'm, I'm a third-generation musician. You could say, look, my family helped start a denomination. There was a family who used to come to our church years ago, and, and, and their family helped start a denomination. That's amazing. So much pride could be. These people did not have pride at all. Actually, they were very humble. And I was like, wow, you know, if, I, if my great-great-grandfather started a denomination, I'd be like, dude, legit, submit. You know what I'm saying? Not at all. My great-grandfather did not. He played drums in a jazz band. There you go. The South in general has a great deal of religious pride because we think, well, our tradition is good, or our church this, or our denomination this, or our network this. And let me tell you, even, you know, we've been part of the Acts 29 network for years, and pride is a killer. A29 used to stand not only for Acts 29, but for the arrogant 29-year-olds. <laughs> And so the president one day sat us down and said, you are a bunch of cocky men and you need to repent before the Lord before you ever open your mouth on a pulpit on a Sunday. Thank you for that repentance. And it was sweet. Here's the good news. is In the gospel, we're not defined by our fear, guilt, or sin, or brokenness of our past, nor are we defined by our pride, by our family, by our tradition, by our denomination, by our cool, hip network, by our talents or skills or perceived talents and skills. Jesus releases us from fear. He releases us from pride. He redeems us so we can have fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. And this, my friends, is actually a very humbling thing. So I want us all to take a little assessment of our hearts and minds and lives because all of us need to have the gospel wreck us of fear, guilt, shame, pride, some of those things for some of you, all of those things for some of you, all of those things for me, just to be transparent. I deal with fear, guilt, shame, pride every day. So you can pray for me. I'll pray for you. Fellowshipping. Thirdly, so we look at our new identity, our new relationship with God and each other, and then there's a new way of living. Because this identity we have in Christ is experienced both relationally with God, relationally with each other, and will be experienced perfectly for all eternity, which is awesome. But here and now, like I said, like marriage, you can't just say, hey, thanks for marrying me. In 30 years when we're in the retirement home, then I'll relate to you. That's what what many people do as Christians. They say, well, Jesus saved me, so I'm just going to live like and have a lot of fun for the rest of my life, and then I'll just worship God in heaven. Nope. Not a good idea. You wouldn't do that in your marriage. You're not going to do it with Jesus. So we have a new way of living for eternity, but also here and now. Look what Scripture says that we are free, we are forgiven, we have hope, and we will live in obedience, right? I mean, that's what it lays out for us here. It's a new way of living together and community, right? Verse 15 said it right out the gate. He's a mediator of the new covenant. We are called, we may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, right? So we are redeemed, that means we are free. Secondly, we are forgiven. Verse 22 says it very clearly, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. By implication, what, what the author is saying, that look, Jesus died as a sacrifice once and for all. That means his shed blood redeems us from our sin and forgives us from transgression. So that's good news. Verse 28 says it as well. Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. 
Right. So Jesus was, was offered as a sacrifice to bear the sins of many. Many who? Many people that he calls into a covenant relationship. Right? Many. There's a lot of people. So we are free from guilt, free from shame, free from fear, free from our past, free from transgressions and sins, no longer defined by those things. If you've ever been defined by those things in Christ, you're not defined by those things anymore. And if somebody says that you are, rebuke them with the Holy Spirit and maybe a little, just the Holy Spirit, rebuke them. If somebody is, if you have some thought in your head late at night and you're sitting there thinking about how wretched your past is, you just cling to Jesus because he does not define you by your past anymore. You are free. You are forgiven once and for all. Christ's sacrifice is good for that. So thankful. We live as people who are free, forgiven. We live as people who, are, who have hope. Verse 28 says that. And Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Woo! Are you eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? I am, because I know once and for all my sin and wickedness and foolishness has been dealt with. I need reminding every day. My pride, my guilt, my fear. That's why I need you guys. I need fellowship. I need people to say, Jeremy, you're not defined by that anymore. There's a little gospel band-aid for you. We have hope. This fuels while we live life. Have you ever in your life, maybe you experienced this, or maybe you know somebody who, who lives in religious fear? Do you know anybody like that? Somebody that's like, um, Jesus is coming. Look busy. You know anybody like that? You know anybody that's like, I just want to live perfect life so when Jesus shows up, like he didn't know what you were doing? You know? That's not the gospel. The gospel is we are fueled with an eagerly awaiting of Christ's return because we are so confident that he has saved us and secured us that we are free, we are forgiven, we have hope. It's a joyful anticipation. Here's another one that's important. Don't let grace cause you to not see this important piece. You can be blinded by grace. So grace is great. Hold it. Embrace it. Thank God for grace. But also, verse 19 and 20 says this. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. If we are going to live as people in a new covenant way of living, with a new identity, being called, being redeemed, having fellowship with God and each other, being uh, free and forgiven and full of hope, we are going to be people who are living obedient lives. There are commandments that God commands of his people. He does. I believe wholeheartedly that scripture is clear that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. I believe that. I will die for that truth. I believe also that God is clear because we are saved by grace, because we are saved by faith, which is active, which is something you participate in, because we are saved through Christ alone. He is our mediator, our redeemer. He gives us a new identity. Because of those things, we live lives of obedience to God's commands. We will be imperfect in our obedience. 
the minute you think you are living in a perfect, obedient life, pride has crept in and you are being disobedient because God says humble yourself. So, what does this mean, Jeremy? You're saying I have a new identity as a covenant person, that we have a new identity as covenant people, that we live as called, redeemed, free, forgiving, hopeful, fellowshipping with God, fellowshipping with other people, and we are to live obedient lives of being the commands. What does that mean? That means that what fuels you is not fear and pride. What fuels you is grace. Not I'm going to obey so that God will accept me and others will approve of me, but rather Because God loves me and accepts me and I belong with these people, I want to obey. I want to relate to God and relate to others so well. And I trust that God knows what he's talking about when he says, don't sin, don't commit adultery, don't lust, don't be overly angry and murder somebody. This is just a couple of the ten. I get them out of order because I'm a broken man and he's redemption. I'm thankful my salvation doesn't rely on me quoting the Ten Commandments in order. What are some examples of how we can live as covenant people? I want to just throw a couple at you, and I'll trust that you will read your Bible and let God chop up your heart and soul, and you can process it in community, and that God, by his Holy Spirit, will shape this for us. I've been praying for 10 years since this church has been around, because I I need it to. If you read in Scripture, Old Testament, Israel, when God's people obeyed, things went well for them. When they rebelled and disobeyed, things went very poorly for them. Exile, oppression, slavery. Why? Those seasons were often marked with rebellion, disobedience, idolatry. But the good news, man, read in Acts 2. You know a couple verses that describe the, the, the first church forming? You know? Jesus like... Died, buried, resurrected, like ascends to heaven. Like as he's going, he's like, hey, everybody, just go preach the gospel to the earth. Holy Spirit comes down, just wrecks everybody. It's so awesome. And then Acts 2.42 describes the church as being devoted to the teaching, being devoted to the fellowship, being devoted to worship and prayers. I love it. It says they were generous people. They had glad and generous hearts. That means they were doing generous things but with glad and generous heart. They've been transformed. Because people can do generous things very begrudgingly. Right? You can say, I'm going to give money. Okay, I'll help you do that. Right? Somebody asks you to help lift something. You say, I lifted that, but I was so mad about it. Well, (laughs) Scripture says that when Jesus secures the redemption of somebody and the Holy Spirit like awakens within them this understanding. They have fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. They have glad and generous hearts. They will do joyful and generous things. They will give time and resources away. They will use their talents and gifts to do things to serve others and to honor God because God's just like shaping them, just like bubbling up grace within them. Some other examples in the Bible, if you read the New Testament, we often call these the one and others. There's a lot of commands that are descriptive of what happens when God wrecks his people and people obey what it means to be new covenant people. The one and others, like love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, give to one another, submit to one another, fellowship with one another, be patient with one another, encourage one another, teach one another. Wouldn't you like to be part of that kind of community? I want to. By God's grace, we're seeing so much of this happen here. 
You know why? It's not because we're awesome. It's not because we belong to some cool network or denomination or that we're meeting in the coolest school ever. It's because God's up to something. It's because God, as he always does, initiates a relationship that Jesus secures and that we get to experience the fellowship with God and each other. And in that, by the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we can obey, although imperfect at times. I just read that list. I get depressed. I don't always love well. I don't always serve well. I don't always pray well. Well, believe me, I don't always submit well or fellowship well or. I'm kind of an introvert, so it's honestly sometimes hard for me to fellowship. Sometimes I just want to sit in my backyard and read a book, which is fine. But God says I need other people in my life. I have to invite people to come, you know, do a couple body shots on the heart of Jeremy. Be patient with one another. If you want to pray for me, pray for that one. I'm not patient at all. Never have been, ever. My dad's not patient. My granddad wasn't patient. My, My son's not patient. You pray for the car men, that we would be patient. And by God's grace, through the Holy Spirit, I think he will shape us to be patient men. Encourage one another. I'm sarcastic. Sometimes that's not encouraging, ever. Actually, it's never encouraging. So I'm sorry for that. Teach one another. By God's grace, I try. So what I'm saying is this. In Christ, we have a new identity, personally, as a community. In Christ, we have a new relationship with God and each other. And in Christ, we have a new way of living in freedom, hope, forgiveness, and grace-saturated obedience. So um, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I'm not trying to sell you Christianity. I'm trying to just tell you how awesome Jesus is, that he takes imperfect people and loves them and shapes them and draws them close to their creator. That's such good news. So if you're not a Christian, I just want you to know Jesus. In Christ, you have forgiveness. You have hope. You have joy. Uh, You don't have a perfect life. You you never will this side of eternity. Um, But in Christ, you have somebody who's going to bat for you. He's a mediator. That's good news. If you are a Christian, I want you to join me. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. I want us together in fellowship with one another before God to be people who are marked with ongoing repentance and belief in the gospel, meaning repentance, turning from sin, turning from fear, turning from, from pride, turning from anything other anything that's not Jesus, we need to turn from and turn to Christ. And I want us to be people who have ongoing belief, that's ongoing faith, that's active, that's trusting relationally Jesus and expressing that through obedient living together. It won't be perfect. It won't be perfect. We're going to mess up from time to time. There's going to be times where I don't teach well. You can pray that God will use me to teach well, but sometimes I won't. Um, And I will pray for your patience with me in that area. And we can pray for one another and serve one another and by God's grace experience great fellowship with God and Christ together. Is that a deal? That sounds good. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness to us. God, your word is so beautiful and thick with great truth. And God, it's like trying to eat a huge steak. Um, So God, I pray that uh, you would bring by your Holy Spirit great understanding of your scriptures. God, that you would open our hearts to receive the good news of Christ. God, that we would understand the gospel. And when we do so, it would be in such humility, with such grace, with such repentant hearts and ongoing trust and faith in Jesus 
God, I pray that you would shape us corporately together. God, that we would experience fellowship with you, that we would experience fellowship with one another. God, that we would see people of different ages and stages in life and different geographies and different opinions, different politics and socioeconomic status and different goals and different ways of doing family and school. And God, that we would all come together. God, I thank you for the glimpses we see of this now, but I pray that it would be continually growing this way so that when we all get together, we say, wow, the only thing we have in common is Jesus. And that's good enough. He's good enough. And that, God, you would shape us to be just grace-filled, grace-saturated people experiencing great joy in the good news that Christ has redeemed us and secured us with a new identity and that we would experience great joy in worshiping and fellowshipping with you as our Father and with each other as fellow redeemed saints and heirs of the promised inheritance that we have in Christ. And, God, that you would use this amazing amazing gospel community that you were shaping. God, to take the good news across the globe. God, that you would start in our marriages and families, that you would start in our homes and and ripple out to our neighborhoods, our jobs, our school, our, our places of culture and where we hang out. And God, that the good news of Jesus would ripple out to the nations across the globe so that people on the other side of the planet won't know who we are, but God, that they would know who Jesus is. God, I pray that that would happen. God, I pray for people in Asia and Africa, South America, North America, Antarctica. God, people in India and Europe. Places and islands and mountains and forests and cities and jungles. God, I pray that every man, woman, and child on the planet will hear the fame of Jesus. God, I pray that in all things you receive the glory, that we receive great joy, and that the gospel would indeed go forth. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.